Next we have Julie Stratton. Julie is a gender-bending, soul-seeking lesbian whose journey to authenticity has included playing collegiate basketball, getting sober, earning a BA and MA, and marrying her person and being a caregiver. Julie has found a home in the North Idaho LGBTQ plus community and co-creating the North Idaho Pride Alliance. Tonight, Julie's gonna tell us a story about how she got hooked on her favorite thing. And here we go, Julie Stratton. Well, I started playing basketball when I was 12 years old. And really, that's when I started learning basketball, learning how to play. And it was really love at first bounce. I fell in love with everything about the game. Now, back in the 70s, the rules were really different for girls and boys. And the girls didn't get to play organized basketball until we were a certain age. And I was not of that certain age yet. But luckily, I met the head coach, the head varsity coach for our local high school. And he brought me into his gym and he introduced me to his team. I was kind of like a lost stray puppy that they adopted. They saw this scrawny little tomboy that needed a place to belong and they brought me into their fold. In fact, they named me Half Pint. That was my nickname. And I still have the little shirt and it is little. I think it's only that big. That says half pine on the back of it. But this was really an amazing group of young women who taught me far, far beyond the game of basketball. Now, one of my jobs as manager was I got to shag the balls and I got to fill the water. And of course, I got to pick up all of their sweaty jerseys because that's what I love to do. And my mom was more than happy to give me up a couple hours a, a night after school because I had so much energy, I'm pretty sure I could have powered a nuclear power plant. And she just was tired of me bouncing the ball in the house and bouncing her off the walls. And so they took me in. One of my favorite memories off the court was Michelle stuffing me into the trunk of her car with a cooler of beer and going to the drive-in. I was in love with John Travolta. And it was the only way I was going to see Saturday Night Fever. So I happily got into this trunk with this cooler, and they smuggled me in, and I saw my first R-rated movie at 12 years old. I'm pretty sure it's the first time that I got drunk on Miller Lite, too. <laughs> now, this team was very special, and they worked really hard, and they earned a trip to the state tournament. And we went to the University of Illinois to play in the Assembly Hall, which is this great arena and they took me with them every step of the way as their half pint and their tag along. I was at practices, I was in the locker room, I was on road trips, I was at their parties, I was everywhere. And when they ran out onto the floor for their first game, the crowd went crazy. The pep band played our, our fight song and I proudly walked out with our coach, Paul Judson. I was in this spiffy, three-piece red velvet suit that my grandma made. <laughs> I was feeling on top of the world. The sound, the smells, everything that went into this game, I fell in love. I fell in love with the game of basketball, and I fell in love with being a part of a team and who those women were. Now, unfortunately, my parents moved around a lot, and I never got a chance to play for Coach Judd at that high school. 
And so we moved between my eighth grade and freshman year to a little town in central Illinois that really didn't have basketball. In fact, our gym burnt down homecoming night my sophomore year. <laughs> so I had a piece of plywood and a metal hoop with no net nailed to a tree on our rocky driveway, and that became my practice court. Because I was determined, when I saw those girls playing at that state tournament, I was determined that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play basketball the rest of my life if I could. At least I wanted to get a basketball scholarship. But I wanted what they had in that moment. I knew that's what I was going to do. So I kept practicing. Now, the end of my sophomore year, my parents got divorced. And my mom came to me and said, you get to choose where we move next. I was like, cool. <laughs> I was 15 years old. My love affair with Miller Lite was going good and strong. <laughs> I wasn't particularly interested in school. I wasn't doing great in, in school or anything. But I knew I held on to that dream that I wanted to play basketball in college. And so I thought, well, i got to find a high school where they're pretty good and I have a shot at it. So I did some research, went to some camps, talked to some coaches, and I found a high school in Peoria, Illinois that um, had a tremendous history of basketball. And so I went to Peoria Richwoods to become a Lady Knight. And the Lady Knights really were a powerhouse team in Illinois. My junior year it was a, a big transition. I went from a school in a rural, very rural town of 150 kids to an urban school of 1,600. I went from being the star athlete to being somebody who came off of the bench and didn't start. My grades were suffering. I was drinking as much as I could. But I still managed to play and play fairly well. So by my senior year, we had done really well. And we managed to go to the state tournament. I got back to that arena that started my career. We went 32-0 that year, and we won that state championship. It really was pretty awesome, and the party afterward was epic, for sure. Now, while I was out living my dreams, my mom, she was working three jobs just to put food on the table and a roof over our head. She worked at the book bindery at the school district. She cleaned apartments, and she worked at Kmart as a checker. One of my favorite memories with my mom was at that time was when she got off work at 9 o'clock, we would go to the grocery store. And we would go down the aisle, and she would push the cart, and she would hand me things. And inevitably, I would shoot them into the basket, because I was shooting everything I could handle, my socks, my underwear, laundry, it didn't matter. But she would hand me our favorite Stouffer's ham and cheese crepes, and I'd shoot them into the basket. Bag of chips and I'd shoot it. So we always came home with crushed chips, <laughs> bruised produce, but this was our best time. We would go up and down every aisle of the IGA, laughing, telling stories, talking about our day, and all the other crap could just melt away just for that moment. It's a precious memory that I have with my mom. Now, I'd, finally, I got that call towards the end of my senior year that I'd been waiting for since I was 12 years old. And I got a call from Jill Hutchison, who was the head coach of Illinois State University Lady, Lady Redbird program. And she offered me a full-ride scholarship, and I happily accepted. 
ISU would prove to be a perfect fit for me. I was once again in transition and struggling, going from a smaller, well, a high school to a university where I could easily get lost. I was never a good student, and I was drinking more and more. But my love of the game of basketball and my commitment to my teams kept me going. So my freshman year, we did pretty well, and we ended up in the National Invitational Tournament in Texas, and we were playing Oklahoma State University. Time's ticking down, and we are up by one point. My first postseason ever as a freshman. I got a lot of playing time. So I'm guarding the ball, and this girl is pretty far from the basket. And back then, there was no 30-second shot clock and no three-point line. And she, she was a good 30 feet from the basket. But I was determined she was not going to score on me. And so she went up for her last-second shot, and I went up to block her. Well, you can imagine what happened. I fouled her. Yeah. 30 feet from the basket. Pretty sure she wasn't going to make it, but I fouled her. <laughs> she went to the free throw line for two free throws, and she made them both. Uh -huh. We lost the game. Now I was devastated. I was really disappointed, mostly not because we lost, but really because I disappointed my team. And I know my team had to be upset with me, but they showed me tremendous grace. As a, as a freshman, they chalked it up to a freshman mistake. Hopefully, I would never make again. So fast forward to my senior, or sophomore year, and we are playing our rival Southern Illinois University at their place. Always a huge game. Six seconds left on the clock. We're down by one. We have the ball out of bounds under our own basket. The ball comes in to me. Something I had dreamt of years and years and years. And it played out exactly how I dreamt it. I received the ball, I turned and faced the basket, I went up with a perfect arc and swish. We are now up by one point with four seconds to go. And let me tell you, four seconds in basketball can be a long time. But everybody's screaming and hollering and everybody on the team is hugging and our band is going crazy and Marla, our center, runs up to me and grabs my hands, both of them, and says, no foul. In fact, I'm pretty sure every single person said, no foul, because they remembered that freshman mistake. So Marla kept hold of my hand, and we went down, and we played out those last four seconds, and we won the game. Now, Marla holding my hand would become a symbol of everything that basketball meant to me and everything that teams meant to me. Going towards the end of my junior year, we didn't do particularly great. We had an okay season, but no postseason. But my life was getting out of control. I was drinking almost every day, smoking pot almost every day. I wasn't going to any of my classes. My behavior was erratic. Nobody knew what to expect. And I got a call from my coach who said, we need to talk. Now, this wasn't our first talk over three years that I had been there. And I know this was the most difficult conversation that I would have. So I showed up to her office and she laid it out for me. She said, you have two choices. You can either stop drinking and go into treatment, or you will never play basketball here again and you'll lose your scholarship. This is not how I saw my 
basketball career ending. I was 20 years old. I had one more year to play. And I loved my team, and I needed them more than anything. So basketball and those women on my team and everybody who came before them won that day. And on April 28, 1986, at 9 a.m., it was a Monday, I entered inpatient treatment. It was, it was the best decision I ever made, but it was also the scariest and hardest thing that I've ever done. After 32 days, I was released with a new shot at life. I stayed sober that summer, and going into my senior year, I earned my way back into my classes. I earned my way back onto that team, and I earned the trust of my teammates, and they voted me as one of the captains. I graduated, and I finished my education, and I walked across that graduation stage, something that I, I always wanted, but I never knew was possible. And now I'm almost 34 years sober, and I am eternally grateful since I was 12 years old and introduced to the game of basketball and every person who had influenced my life up until that point. I am eternally grateful to all of those teammates who are my sisters and my teammates for life. And it's funny, I'll still go into an empty gym and I'll pick up a ball and I'll look around and I'll listen for the crowd and I'll remember that last second shot that I had at Southern Illinois University and the joy, the pure joy of being a part of something so much greater than myself. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. That was a great story. So for our last storyteller, uh, again, I am going to have the privilege of introducing truly uh, one of my personal heroes. If you don't know who Mandy Manning is, I encourage you to Google her. So Mandy, uh, amongst other things, is uh, a teacher. She uh, teaches English to newly arrived refugees and immigrant students in the Newcomer Center at the Joel E. Ferris High School. In recognition of the great work that Mandy has done, she was awarded Teacher of the Year in 2018. So I decided I'm not gonna make this political tonight, but seriously, Google Mandy Manning. She is a, a local hero. And she's gonna tell us a story tonight about something most of us can relate to. Probably my, my dad, who still uses a flip phone, but everyone, probably the rest of us, can relate to this particular hook. Mandy Manning. Hi, everybody. Uh, those were some great stories. Oh, my gosh. I think Katie probably should have been a teacher. Just saying. Um, so I, I've never really thought of myself as having an addictive personality. I have uh, been touched by addiction often close to home, but it's been the stereotypical type of, of, of addiction, uh, drugs, alcohol. But you never know your poison. That one thing that slowly takes over your life and becomes something that you occasionally engage in to something that you can't even get through the day without doing. And it turned out for me 
that thing came with vibrant, beautiful colors and a seductive voice. So I'm a teacher, and my first year teaching was also the first year that I had a cell phone. Yes, I'm that old. Um, and back then, cell phones weren't really that cool. You could call with them, and you could text, but it was super cumbersome to text because you had to hit the number so many times to get to the letter that you wanted. So it was much easier just to call, and most people still had house phones. But in the 21 years since I became a teacher, phones have changed a lot. Now, I'm old enough to remember those big blocks that the wealthy families had in their cars, that when you held it up, it looked like you were holding a brick. But now we have these amazing, like, handheld computers that we just keep in our pockets. And as a teacher, I can tell you, Cell phones are pretty much a nightmare. All of the kids have them. And I mean all of the kids. I teach brand new immigrant and refugee kids to our nation, and they all have phones too. And kids are hilarious with their phones. They have them, and they're using them, and they try to sneak them during class, and they just think it's totally normal to look at your crotch the entire time. <laughs> So it can be very difficult to navigate in a room full of 24 kids. And for the longest time, I really had a hard time understanding this, this, this need to constantly check in, the way that they played games all the time, even if there was just a moment of free time in between classes, the way that they're constantly taking selfies and now videos. I uh, didn't have a phone until I was nearly 25. And I also was late to social media. And for the most part, I just used my phone to text and to call. I never played games at all. Um, so it was really hard for me to understand, and I would get very frustrated with my students. That is until Candy Crush <laughs> and the beautiful columns of falling candies came into my life. It started innocently enough. My husband, he's sitting right here, he uh, loves to play games on his phone before he goes to bed. It relaxes him. And I used to make so much fun of him. Um, but one day, and, and he'll tell me that it's me that introduced him to the game, but I'm almost positive that he was playing a game one night and an ad came up for this mesmerizing game that had these gorgeous sounds, and these beautiful colors, and this voice that said, tasty, ooh, candy. And immediately, I went to the app store and downloaded it. And I started to play, and then I became a pusher, and I made my husband download it too. And that was our game of choice before we went to sleep at night. <laughs> and so in those early days, it was pretty easy to, you know, just become an occasional user. Because um, you had to wait 24 hours if you used up all of your lives in order to play again. Um, unless you wanted to pay for lives, and I was not willing at that point 
to pay for, for lives on a phone game. Plus, the levels, while easy at first, increasingly grew more difficult until it was taking me like three days to pass a level. It was so frustrating. And so one day, I turned to my husband and I was like, if I do not pass this level this time, I am deleting this game. And I didn't pass and I deleted it. So see, no problem, I wasn't hooked. And actually, I stayed away from it for years, literally years. Um, and then my job changed, and I started to have to travel a lot. I was traveling all over the United States and the globe, and I was experiencing new places, and I was meeting new people, and it was all so exciting until it wasn't. And then I started to have to travel to two or three cities in a week, and I was spending more time in an airport exploring the terminal than I was the city that was surrounding us. I was already into social media, so I liked to go to Twitter and Facebook, but only so much because the world is awful. So it would make me angry. And then I would read articles, but you can only read so many articles on that tiny screen before your eyes start to cross. And I, so I was very bored and I needed a distraction. And so one day I was on the plane and I looked over and this woman was playing a game on her phone. And I looked at it and I went, there were those candies. And they were falling and they were just begging to be matched. And I should have noted in that moment when I saw Candy Crush, I should have noted that my, my breathing was increasing and my eyes were wide and my hands were all jittery. But then I noticed they had a new kind of candy. And when you matched it, it turned other candies the same color. And then I heard that voice. Delicious. Ooh, yummy. <laughs> and there it was again. I immediately went to the app store and I downloaded it. I had a six hour flight in front of me and of course I needed something to distract me. What harm could it do? Well, this time it was a little bit different. You did not have to wait 24 hours for new lives. As a matter of fact, it just kept giving me free plays. I could play for hours and never die. And the levels were easier. So I could play and pass and get three stars every single time. And hear yes. Ooh. And then I started to miss deadlines. And not even a movie could keep me, keep my focus. I would have to pause in the middle of the movie and play one level, just one level. And then it started to infiltrate, fa infiltrate family time. We started not eating together as much and I found myself hiding in my office because I just had to play. But I didn't see this as a problem. Not even when my husband was like, get off your phone. I was like, because he still played games. Sure, he didn't play Candy Crush, but he played Where's My Water. <laughs> What's the difference? 
it's a distraction. But then the dreams started. I didn't even have to close my eyes and I would see columns of candies falling and popping and streamers. And you'd think that would be enough, but it wasn't. Then one day I was driving and I was approaching an intersection and the traffic light turned into candies. <laughs> and I swerved a little and I thought, holy Jesus, I'm going to kill us all. And so I decided, okay, maybe it's time. I need to delete the game. But it was so hard. It was so hard and it took me forever and I kept telling myself just one more level. Just one more, okay, after this, I'll play one more level and then I'm done. And it wasn't until my son, my littlest, came to me and he was trying to tell me something and he was like, mom, 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 mom. And I realized I was on my phone and I wasn't paying attention to him. And so before I could even think about it, I just turned it off. I deleted the game before I could even think about it. And it seemed easy, but it was weeks where I would pick my phone up and I would go to the app and then I would realize it was gone. And I would feel it, that absence. So now, I take purposeful breaks from my phone. So we recently went on a family vacation. We went on a cruise and we chose not to get the data plan and we did not have Wi-Fi. And so the entire family, even my two phone-obsessed teenagers, turned their phones off and put them away, and it was heaven. But in the middle of our cruise, I was reminded of the hold these devices have over us. We had gone on a shore excursion to this beautiful beach in the Caribbean, and I wanted nothing more than jerk chicken. And so we found a little cafe, and we sat down to eat, the whole family, and there was a sign that said free Wi-Fi. And my middle son, he had brought his phone along to take pictures because that's, you know, our device does everything now. And he, and he was like, well, I just want to dash off of, I just want to text. I just want to text my girlfriend and tell her we're having such a great time and I miss her. Um, and so we were like, cool, do it. And that's when I noticed the change in him. He, his breathing became more increased and his pupils dilated. And every time the screen would start to go black, he would tap it, tap it, tap it, tap it. And it was really crappy Wi-Fi. So it was taking a really long time and he just couldn't wait, licking his lips, waiting for that fix, that connection. While in that moment, being completely unable to connect with the people right there in front of him, his family. And I thought, that is me. That's my students. That's most of us. It's global. And as for me and my own addiction, it's very real. I own it. I try to put my phone away when, we're, when I'm with my family. I limit the time that I spend on any kind of entertaining app. I don't know if you've heard of TikTok, but <laughs> open that app and the, before you know it, it's an hour later and you've watched a whole bunch of really ridiculous, stupid videos. 
But as far as Candy Crush, I avoided at all costs. Even doing this was really hard for me. <laughs> but sometimes when I'm sleeping and I'm dreaming, I hear that voice. Ooh, tasty. Thanks. Well, sadly, that is all for tonight. Thank you all so much for coming. And remember, we've got another one of these coming up in April. Um, let's have a big round of applause for all our storytellers. Tonight's storytellers were Julie Stratton and Mandy Manning. Last night, it was Tyler Hobbs and Brent Birch, and on Monday, Ryan Tucker, Kate Burke, and Josh Porter. These stories are all up on our website as podcasts. Go to kpbx.org, then the bookshelf. Pivot Spokane's April event will be Thursday, April 30th.